Hello, everyone. We're here to talk about a little-known topic of artificial intelligence, or AI. And I'm Alex Conrad at, from Forbes. I'm joined here by Scott Belsky, who is an executive at Adobe and a prolific angel investor and a founder. And I think I've written about probably five different things you've done. So, Scott, do you want to tell the audience kind of how you spend your time right now? Sure. Well, I, uh, my obsession is generally product. It's generally things for the creative industry. Um, as the founder of Behance, you know, I've kind of been in the creative industry for uh, well over a decade. Uh, most recently, you know, overseeing all of um, our, our creative at Adobe and thinking also about, um, you know, new technologies and, and uh, a few acquisitions along the way. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's been an exciting time. I feel like it's one of those moments where months of progress happens in a day. So nice time to be alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you're at Adobe and uh, ChatGPT drops. Are you already playing with AI at this time? Is there a aha moment where you're like, everybody get in this tool right now? What, what is the sort of eureka moment internally last year or before that, that that gets you thinking about this a lot? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the best case scenario is for a company to always be kind of doing things, uh, progressing in the new technology, but then there are like realization moments of like applicability. And so, you know, for us, we've been do we have we've had artificial intelligence powered capabilities in our tools for many years. Things like content aware fill that re replaces something in Photoshop and now in video, like replaces a moving object in video and all these sorts of things. Neural filters, a few other features over the years that became pretty popular. But on the generative AI side, um, certainly. Uh, there was like the realization moment of, well, wow, like everything's going to change, right? I mean, in terms of how customers use a product and get things done without prior knowledge, we're always trying to reduce the learning curve. We're always trying to increase creative confidence, which ultimately in increases the top of our funnel and the, the base of our business. Um, and, and certainly, certainly generative AI has, has been one of those things, and we see relevance across the entire um, uh, product lineup. So I know, I know we're live streamed, so bear with me if you're watching remotely, but for everyone in the audience, I'm just curious, Please raise your hand if you've played with ChatGPT. Okay, that's most people in the audience. What about if you've used an Adobe tool at some point? Even more hands. What about if you've used an Adobe AI tool? Okay, so almost nobody. Um, Scott, what are the odds they've used an Adobe AI tool at some point, but they don't realize it? Yeah, uh, quite high. Um, <laughs> I mean, for example, Acrobat. You know, if you have Acrobat, we have a tool called, uh, we have a filter or a mode called liquid mode, where it takes any PDF with any sort of weird construed graphs and data and whatever else, and then basically makes it a, a, you know, presented in a responsive format. And that was trained off of, you know, literally hundreds of millions of PDFs and, and, uh, and is all driven by artificial intelligence. And then, of course, you know, all of our all of our products, including Photoshop and Lightroom, all the auto, auto make better, auto correct, whatever stuff is now at this point powered by you know pretty pretty um, robust models. This is what this is one of the things I think is like really interesting about the AI debate today is that the headlines and you know we at Forbes are um, trying to improve the conversation, but also are guilty of this to some extent that the, you know the biggest headlines will be Sam Altman talking about. Um, artificial general intelligence, and you know when will the AI take over from humans, and sort of these these really kind of long term questions. But then, in your actual workflow and in your day to day, there are these kind of really boring little uses of AI that are already 
in our workflow, right? So, so if you're a creative using Adobe, you are using AI, just not necessarily like a chat GPT API, right? Well, yeah. And I mean, the, I think the dirty little secret in technology is that the, uh, the product succeeds because of the user's experience of the technology, not the technology. And yet we like to write about the technology because it's cool and whatever. Um, our customers you know, have ideas, and then there's lots and lots and lots and lots of workflow after every idea. And so I, 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 our, our, our general thesis is that um, if you can reduce the amounts of workflow that's required after an idea, you can actually make more ideas happen, right? And so it's all about uh, integrating some of these technologies to reduce workflow uh, or automate workflow. And, uh, and if you ask any great creative, like what makes them great, it's having more surface area of discovery. It's having more time to see more possible solutions so that they can have more choices of which path to follow. What an amazing opportunity for AI to actually suggest, instead of like a whole room of interns, you know, here's some amazing new possibilities, and then you can, you know, have more ideas of what to pursue. Something definitely has changed recently, though. Like, you know, two years ago, the CEO of Forbes would not be asking me to give a lunch and learn about AI to, like, the Forbes sales team. And obviously, I think for a lot of people in the audience, there, there, is a, there is sort of a, a, a sea change that it feels like has happened. So from, from your perspective, having gone through multiple tech cycles, what exactly would you say is really new and different and exciting about you know, where we are today versus what we could do with some of these tools you know, two years ago? Well, I think, that, um, I think that one of the big things is it comes back to this notion of creative confidence. You know, and, and I often think about it this way. You know, at, at, we're, we're, we're peak creative confidence most of us at three years old. You know, it's when we're drawing and painting and you know, doing things and we show proudly to our teachers or our parents and it's like, wow, like, I am so creatively confident. And then sadly, you know, maybe five, six, seven, it starts to go downhill as we realize we don't possess skills that other people possess and oh, that's actually better than what I made. And, and then we all sort of feel constrained by our capabilities. And so there's something happening right now where suddenly uh, creative confidence is going up, not down, based on this new technology. The idea of coming up with a prompt and having like no workflow required to visualize it is super compelling. Now, I also think that you know, if you look at the spectrum of people you know, on creativity, uh, most of us are output-oriented. We just want to get something done, and we actually don't care whether the person's standing to the left or the right, or what the hue of the sky is, or whatever else. And then there is the process-oriented creative on the other side, which is our core business, historically. Um, and, I, and I think that there's been very little available on the output-oriented creative. That's why you had to hire people or use templates or whatever else. And so that's all changing now, too. So I, I, my outlook for this is that creative confidence across humanity is going to go up suddenly. And, uh, and the implications of that, I think, for people's careers, for people's creativity, I mean, it's just, it's super exciting. Now, you know, there, there have been concerns from some creatives, yep. um, whether they're artists or, you know, illustrators or, or others who do use Adobe tools who worry that their work can be copied or it's kind of feeding the algorithm in a way that makes it harder for them to differentiate and kind of be compensated and recognized for their work. You know, you, you guys make tools for these creators, and so is there a tension point between kind of what the technology can do to kind of, you know, catch up some people and the outputs that, you know, some of your most successful users are, are currently making? Well, you know, two thoughts on that. You know, number one is on how to um, really uh, make this work for creatives and also protect them to some degree. Um, there's, there's, you know, ideas we're exploring, like, you know, Behance has 40 million 
creatives in their, and, and we could actually block the usage of those names in the prompts that people use such that people can't leverage someone else's style without their permission or without compensating them. Maybe there's a marketplace of styles, you know, where you put in a prompt for a house of whatever, you know, and then it gives you options of people's styles that you can apply, and maybe you can pay to use someone's style. So finding ways to monetize uh, people's uh, unique style, I think, is a new opportunity for for creative um, for creative professionals for sure. Uh, I also think that uh, there's something that we launched called the Content Authenticity Initiative, which basically um, puts metadata in every asset that is generated by generative. AI that actually attributes it to the model, and, uh, and we can actually start to track um, where uh, what what content was used to train for what for what output. There's some attribution stuff that we can do as well. The second comment, though, is that creativity is the world's greatest recycling program. You know, everyone always builds on everything else that they see. Every creative process typically starts with a mood board. What is a mood board? It's basically stuff that inspires you that you're going to then reference and utilize in the creation of something new. And so in some ways, generative AI is doing that as well. And we certainly can't kind of hide from this advancement. We have to you know, find ways to make it work for creatives and make them more productive. Do you think that it'll be the responsibility of a company like Adobe to be getting that right? Or you know, how much responsibility will be with OpenAI or you know, Stability AI or these model providers as well? Well, I think it's, um, it's certainly our opportunity and responsibility to figure this out. Uh, some of these other other companies that are building um, new tools on, with generative AI that have no creative community that they serve, that have no tools that they've ever made, they have actually no obligation. You know, they have no customer base yet to uh, to, to 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 explain. You know, how they're training their models and what and that that's what's allowing them to kind of run rampantly. Um, I think that uh, you know we're in a different position. We we serve the creative community, and so we actually have to. Um, and it's a good thing, like to be forced to you know, navigate that and, and be very transparent and determine like what are the ethics around what can be used as training data and how to uh, ensure that people understand how something was made when they see it. So um, when you're meeting with you know important customers or, or partners for Adobe, what is the vibe? Is it is it just excitement? Is it kind of like caution? Um, are people nervous? What 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 typically are you having to explain to folks who are kind of trying to figure out this, you know, th yep. their strategy here and, and how you guys fit into it? Well, a couple, a couple takeaways. You know, one is um, a lot of our very big enterprise customers uh, are very uh, concerned about using generative AI without understanding how it was trained. They don't see it as viable for commercial use. In a similar way to uh, using a stock image, and, uh, and making sure that if you're going to use it in a campaign, you better damn right have rights for it, you know, and model releases and everything else. Like, there's that level of scrutiny and concern around the viability for commercial use. So that's one piece of feedback we've gotten, which I think is going to impact, um, you know, our product roadmap and how we train, et cetera. Um, I think the other thing is that this has to fit into the, the overall workflows of the, of the organization. Uh, when you're when you're making content and then you are uh, ad uh, adjusting that content for different locales, right, and different cultures and whatever else, that there's a lot of work to be done in that. That uh, our customers are very anxious to find more effective ways of doing. Mm. And so some of the use cases of generative AI that we see on social media that are so wow, actually the more practical ones that may end up really being the the business opportunity are things that just enable content velocity and personalization. 
Yeah, so we, we published a video um, on YouTube at Forbes about AI that's been watched, I think, half a million times. And I was shocked to find out from our video team that we were using Adobe AI in that video, but it was just to improve the audio quality of a Zoom uh, interview to make it sound like the person was in the room. That, to me, feels like non-controversial use, right? Like, I'd, I'd find it hard to believe that anyone is threatened by, by that. And our video team loved it. But there are going to be use cases that could have a mixed reaction, right? I mean, inevitably, as you guys embed more of these tools, would, would that be kind of on the company to decide, you know, how much they want to, to go down this road? Well, ultimately, I think it's we need to give all these options to our customers. So there are already third-party plugins with uh, whether it's OpenAI or stable diffusion-powered models, you know, in 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 Photoshop, right? That are just you know third parties make them, and some customers use them. And and uh, but we just we just need to give our customers options, and we need to be very thoughtful about how we surface these capabilities in the workflows to ultimately serve their you know intended outcomes. But it's uh, it, it has to go down to customer choice. So um, we've talked a lot about Adobe. You obviously um, have an investment portfolio. You meet with startups, um, and you have for a long time. Outside of Adobe, what do you find most exciting about kind of you know the use cases you're seeing or the opportunities that this AI is unlocking? And is there anything that you find uncool or or concerning that you're like, I don't want to go there? Well, I am noticing a pattern in my inbox lately um, that some of you are probably seeing as well, where uh, what was a year and a half ago um, NFT as a service startups that just, you know, the first one came in, I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. And then it was like another one, another one, another one, another one. It was like, oh my gosh, dozens of companies are building these like NFT creator blah, 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 blahs. Um, the same thing is happening right now with interfaces being built on top of the same models that we're all familiar with. Um, different nuances for different target audiences, um, somewhat different use cases, and there's just so, so many of them. And uh, so that, that gives me some caution. Uh, as I think about what makes some of these features or some of these businesses as opposed to features, um, I think about more customer centricity around like the workflow and the various moving parts and the collaborations that happen around uh, the work and everything else. And I look for um, companies also that recognize that it's actually maybe more about the data than it is about the, uh, the, the, the sort of the model. You know, it's, it's more about the sources of the data and making sure that companies that have their own, their own like proprietary data can like leverage that into, into enabling something that one of these generalized models can't. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, I'm looking for very like vertically specific approaches that are ultimately protected by a proprietary sense of, source of data. Some people think that a lot of these kind of startup opportunities will, will evaporate over time. That you know, going for a vertical will not actually be long-term defensible because there's going to be revenge of the big tech companies. And you know, Google or Microsoft through OpenAI or, or whatever, that, that a lot of these huge companies will get close enough that a lot of the kind of startup opportunities here will not actually last you know, more than, let's say, the next year or two. What's kind of your sense of, you know, on, the, on the optimism to pe pessimism scale, where, where are you kind of thinking about what will be a, a long-term opportunity versus something that gets gobbled up by the big guys? Well, you know, it's unpopular to say these days, but I'm, I'm excited by the consumer opportunity side because consumers are, 
you know, we make decisions for a whole suite of different reasons, right? On the enterprise, it's like if Microsoft allows you to just turn on a service and it just lights up across the enterprise, that's a really easy value proposition to sell. But on the consumer side, we actually like, uh, we care about the, the new and novel brand, you know, behind something that, that enriches our life. You know, I think that we're going to have entirely new ways of making purchase decisions, you know, as consumers that are powered by AI. And, um, and there might be a new brand that emerges that enables that. Health, you know, um, the, the consumer experience of navigating your own health, you know, taking all the data of devices like this um, collected over your years, coupled and compared with, you know, a, a group of people, plus like what vitamins you're taking, plus what your lab results are from the doctor, and then put all that together and then have a conversation with a, you know, a sentient, you know, brand that's something new, I think people would actually probably prefer it not be Google in this instance, right? But something that is sort of new and specialized. So I, I, do, I do think that there will be AI native brands that emerge. I'm more excited maybe about some of the consumer ones than some of the enterprise ones for the reasons you cited. Some people wonder, is this uh, Web3 all over again? You know, obviously, luckily, Adobe didn't pivot to the metaverse last year, so it's easier for you guys than some. But, uh, you know, there, there are people who say this, this feels just crazy frothy, over-exuberant. The tech industry wanted something to be excited about, and they're willing this to be kind of the next big topic. Um, how do you separate the froth from, from the substance here? Yeah, well, from a more pragmatic perspective, um, Web3 did not promise to reduce the workflow, the work that has to be done across any idea or action in the organization. Uh, in fact, it added more friction and more work. And there are parts of that world that are, that are still interesting to me and that might emerge to be important over time. But this is different. I mean, the work is work is work, right? And anyone, there's no one who would rather take an hour or 10 minutes to do something that could be done in one second. And so, uh, and so that the, the value of that across every function of an organization, um, I think will be more akin to the, the, the sort of trend of collaboration, uh, collaborative products replacing every sort of function in an organization. You know, there's a whole suite of startups that have actually been quite successful reimagining every function of the enterprise to be more collaborative and web-based as opposed to like old clunky on-premise software. And so similarly, I think, that, I think that AI will do the same thing to reduce the workflow around you know, all these job functions. And we're starting to see a lot of examples of that. And I think we're, we are in early days of that. Um, the opener this morning, while we were you know, getting ready backstage, uh, was, was kind of a, a long bit where, where Mark Suster from Upfront tried to do his speech using a, a GPT tool, and it went disastrously wrong. And, you know, the sort of hallucinations and, and inaccuracy ha have kind of uh, gone viral in ways that I think if I'm a large business, I might be like, this doesn't feel quite ready. Or like, you know, this is fun to play with, but we can't trust our business on one of these tools today. Yeah. Do, do you think that that would be a fair concern? And if so, how long would, would a big corporation want to kind of wait and see a little bit? Yeah. I oftentimes, I, I call this the final mile problem, and I look at you know, like self-driving, for example, it's like you can get 99% of your way there, but then that last 1%, like people are not willing to die 1% of the time, right? <laughs> and so uh, there's a final mile problem in some of these things. Similarly, whenever you have any like public representation of your company, um, at, you know, publishing blog posts in the company's name, like you can't take a risk of one sentence portraying your brand poorly, right? And so where are these final miles the most hard, 
right? And where are they n not important? For example, in, you know, in customer service, if you know you're interacting with a bot, you're going to have a degree of forgiveness because you're going to know. And therefore, if there is something that's said that doesn't sound right, you're not going to be like, oh, my God. You and know? The, the stakes are often low in that case. Right? Correct. Like, so it's lo like low stakes stuff. You know, the final model doesn't have to be as strong. But I think that there's some stuff like, like what you're describing. Um, the second thing is that it's, what's amazing to me in seeing all the technology that's coming in the lab we are entering an age where we will no longer be able to believe our eyes. And it's pretty profound. Like you're gonna be able to, with you know, 30 seconds of recording of your own voice, anyone can make you say anything with audio. And increasingly then can represent you in video via AI. And then suddenly everything will be, you know, nothing, nothing will, uh, can, be, uh, can be assumed to be real. You know, it's like trust but verify will become like verify then trust. We're going to have to verify first that this is actually a human before we can even determine whether we can trust what the person's saying, right? And so I, I think that um, what we're going to have to do is, you know, humanity is going to obviously have to evolve to sort of have that question of, wait, is this real before we even take anything seriously? Okay, this is delicious. I have a couple questions here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so first, first, let's take uh, what is real. So... Um, a Hollywood execs who was here yesterday you know, said, oh, James Cameron did a lot using kind of AI and CGI with Avatar, but he had to make them animals. Mm -hmm. Because if it's a human, it still has that uncanny valley weird factor. You know, and and when, where we've seen in entertainment some of these tools be used, it has been to start a conversation or to provoke debate, but it hasn't felt the same. Do you think that changes? Do you think that matters in the long term? Or does culture accept maybe that uncanny valley and get used to it? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, on the entertainment side of things, I think we are, our, our brains are a lot more malleable. And uh, I mean, I remember when I first got my, my first high-definition TV, and it was actually kind of jarring at first. I don't know about all of you, but when you started to see like the actor's makeup and stuff, and you started to get like the pores in someone's face, it almost took some of the entertainment value out of it. I felt like it was a little too real. You and know? they've said that with 4K, some old movies suddenly you know look completely different than how they right. were intended, right? Exactly. So I think we're you know we have we have some ability to adjust ourselves, but. I also, I do think that, um, you know, much like the notion of the verified check mark that has kind of become butchered more lately, um, but I do think that when we see media in the future, we're going to want to know whether that media is verified or not. And what I, what I think by verified, I don't mean that it doesn't use AI or synthetic or whatever. It just, verified just means that you can see how it was made. And so the opportunity to see the tools and the changes that were made to media that we consume is going to be important. If you see a, you know, some image in the New York Times captured on the front lines in the Ukraine, you're going to want to know that it was captured by this person using this camera, edited in Lightroom, but not manipulated in Lightroom, just made it, you know, contrast changed in Lightroom. And, you know, does that make you trust it versus if it's not verified, you're going to start to wonder, was this just generated? But who verifies? Because, you know, Elon's anti-woke AI, if that ever happens, may have a very different understanding of what is real. Than, yeah, it than can't, it, and again, verifying can't mean that it's true. It just needs to mean that it has provenance. And so that's the way I think about it, is that assets, I mean, if we're trying to be creative here and solve this problem, and I'm being a little, you know, utopia for a moment, but imagine if the provenance of an image, like how it was made, is tracked through the process, through metadata. Mm -hmm. And then, it, yeah, if you want to take a screenshot of it and share it as just an image, fine, but people will, again, uh, gradually be trained to not trust it fully, 
right? And if they, but if they see how it was made, just like if they can see that you're verified and they can see that you have a website and they know that you're a, a real reporter, you know, I just think that those sorts of things are going to matter more. Won't that be exhausting, though, to have to check, you know, validate everything? Like an essay comes in, you run an AI to check if the AI was used to plagiarize, or similarly, Adobe offers a tool that tells us that this was a synthetic audio, and we have to kind of now run that every single time content is made. Is that just the future that we're going to be facing? Um, to some degree. Um, but I, I do also think that the, the, the number of platforms that need to be a part of this in order for the masses, you know, or the majority of us to have access to some of this information, you know, there's, there aren't so many that reach so many people. So, um, but that is one of the challenges we all get to navigate together. But they should be excited, right? <laughs> but we should be pumped. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's empowering technology, but with great opportunity, what do they say? Comes great responsibility. Mm. This is Ending no on another Hollywood line. Awesome. <laughs> we well, are thank here. you, Scott, so much for the insights. Thank you, Thank you everybody. Thanks.